topics each week anthropologically enjoy hey it's a beautiful it's a beautiful day in tampa today uh tampa florida here we are in usf bulls radio studios you are listening to anthro alert on bulls radio wusf 89.7 hd3 tampa 1620 a.m on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org my name is renee your uh, one of your co-hosts here at Bulls. Uh, what shows? <laughs> one of Anthro Alert. Anthro, thank you. <laughs> uh, and that was Spencer. All right. Uh, so this show is about anthropology and why it matters. Each week, we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time, we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. And occasionally we might even play a radio game. Uh, but we believe this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists or as aspiring anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. We like to uh, preface each of our shows with a disclaimer that the statements we make and the opinions we express on AnthroAlert are our very own opinions and may not necessarily be representative of anthropology as a discipline. The USF Anthropology Department, USF, or Student Government, or kittens. <laughs> the opinions of kittens are, are very important to us. Uh, we got a great show today. Um, so our guest today is Vivian, Vivian Gornick. She is a PhD candidate in applied anthropology here at the University of South Florida. She has a BA in anthropology and an MA in museum studies from the University of Florida. That's out in Gainesville, if you did not know. As a cultural anthropologist, she combines her interest in anthropology and museum studies by studying the people who visit museums and heritage sites. Um, quick, quick trivia. Does anybody know how many state parks there are in Florida? How many? Uh, like 170 some. Wow. Okay. That's quite a bit. That's a lot of heritage sites. There, there is a lot. <laughs> there is a lot in Florida, actually. And Vivian probably know more. But well, are national parks heritage sites? Well, we can we can get into that. Yeah, we're we are jumping the proverbial gun. Yeah. So Vivian just completed the fieldwork for her dissertation project, which explores how heritage and national identity are linked at two sites in England. Uh, Glastonbury in Somerset, and Tintagel in Cornwall. The goal of this research is to better understand the role the heritage sites and museums play in the production of national identities, especially in today's global society where conceptualizations of national identity are becoming more difficult to define. Hmm. The post-Brexit United Kingdom is a particularly strong example of a nation going through an identity crisis. What does it mean to be British? Do heritage sites in the UK represent a specific kind of national identity? Or is there the potential for these sites to engage with the UK's multicultural reality? So by better understanding the ways in which current heritage narratives are produced and consumed, suggestions can be made for how heritage can become more inclusive and representative. Wow. That sounds like a lot to talk about. Let's go ahead and bring Vivian on. Vivian, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you for coming on Anthro Alert. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. 
Fantastic. All right, so let's just hop right into the conversation. Um, Renee gave us a little preview of, of what we'll be talking about today and what your research is, but why don't we talk a little bit about your, your background? We got a snapshot of um, your educational background, but um, you know, why did, why did you choose museum studies, and can you tell us a little bit about museum studies? Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, well, my educational background, um, I'm a, originally a Florida Gator, but go Bulls, too. <laughs> um, I pursued a, the field of anthropology initially, um, pretty much based on my own travels and interest in cultural diversity. Um, my parents came over from Germany uh, in the early 80s, so most of my family was always over in Europe, so summer vacation for me included traveling abroad. Mm. Um, and seeing you know the different types of cultures and things always inspired me um, and that was also linked to my interest in museums as well um, one of my first museum memories is actually of a museum in Munich Germany uh, where they happen to have this really really cool exhibit on chemistry where as a six-year-old you could go around and start pushing buttons and creating chemical reactions and watching them which was pretty cool <laughs> it's <laughs> always the best when you museums have <laughs> things you can touch Exactly, yeah. yeah. Very, very early interactive yeah. stuff happening there. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I did my BA in anthropology um, at UF, and then you know, a lot of people will say, well, what are you going to do with that major? Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, which I totally understand a lot of times um, you know, that we are encouraged to couple an anthropology major with something else mm -hmm. um, to make us more marketable. The question that plagues all of us <laughs> as anthropologists. <laughs> um, so for me... Um, I had always been interested in museums, so that mm. was kind of the route that I decided to take. And luckily for me, UF also has a really great museum studies program. Mm. Um, it's in the School of Art and Art History, but we are still encouraged to take classes in our subdiscipline. So I was still taking anthropology courses mm. during that time. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I ended up doing that. And then now I'm here doing the PhD, kind of combining those two things a bit more cohesively. Mm. Yeah, so let's ta let's talk about that that connection um, between museum studies and anthropology a little bit. Let's tease that out a little bit mm -hmm. um, because that's not always a connection that people will make. Of you know, first I'm sure it's like what is museum studies, and then you know what is anthropology. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, always questions. But um, you know, where do you find the connections between between those two fields, and you know, why do you think that connection is an important one? Um, well, first I'll, do, I'll go ahead and explain what museum studies is, okay, um, because a lot of times, you know, even today my husband gets asked, well, what does your wife do? <laughs> and that's the, he dreads that question. Yeah. Has <laughs> um, to make an elevator speech. Yeah. So, but, um, museum studies is a lot more than being a curator. That's what most people associate with working in a museum. Mm. Um, museum studies actually explores every facet that goes into the production of, of, of a museum as an institution. Mm -hmm. So the people who are actually curating the collections, um, managing the collections, the educators who are doing outreach programs from, you know, toddlers to K through 12 to adult programs, and then also the administrative level, um, sort of public engagement, things like that. Fundraising is a huge part. Mm. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> that yeah. isn't a big focus. Right. So um, where does anthropology come into that? I was always interested in why people go to museums. Mm -hmm. So as a cultural anthropologist with a certain skill set of you know, observing people and their behavior, uh, I thought that would be a really interesting combination of how to understand why people are going um, 
who isn't going is also a really important question, especially when it comes to um, creating these sustainable institutions. And um, being able to understand people's motivations, I think, is really useful for museums. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where my research intersects the two fields together. Hmm. Renee, do you like museums? I've, I've been to a museum. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have. I've been to a couple. Actually, I, I enjoy museums. I think we lost Renee. I think, <laughs> I think we did. Having a little bit of technical difficulties here on Anthro Alert. It's a weekly occurrence. It's okay. You guys are hanging with us. We're fine. <laughs> um, so just... Um, in this in this research, you know, you, you you talked about what what kinds of people go to museums, and you know, what are the motivations? Have you found any like general general answers to those questions, or maybe things that hint at um, sort of answering those questions? Um, a lot of research has been done, uh, visitor studies, and and in trying to categorize visitors into boxes, mm -hmm. um, which is actually kind of something that I would like to work against. Um, some of the traditional visitor studies will try to create like five main categories of visitors mm. you know like the person who actually goes and reads every label mm -hmm. <laughs> which i don't um i'll <laughs> fully admit that um the person who goes to kind of relax and just browse um you have what some people will call a facilitator so that's it when you have family in town and you have nothing better to do so you take them to the to the museum or the aquarium um mm -hmm. you're facilitating an experience for them um and of course you have sort of survey-based uh, demographic data mm. on visitors based on race, gender, e economic bracket, that sort of thing. Um, and of course, all of those things do play a role. Um, but I think there there's some more maybe intangible or qualitative characteristics of visitors that would be interesting to understand a little bit deeper. Mm. I, I would fit into the category of being a completionist. So I I stand. I go to every single piece of wh of whatever that that uh, whatever museum it is. So I stop at everything and I read everything, and it takes me forever. And so, <laughs> and so people that visit a museum with me immediately lose patience and they go wait in the cafe. They just wait for me. <laughs> so you just block out the whole day. Yes. Hey, I mean, there's museums are are fantastic. I haven't been to one in a really long time. Um, are there, what, what museums are around here in the Tampa Bay area? There's a bunch. Um, actually, just across the street, we've got MOSI. Um, that's oh, a science okay. and technology museum. Oh, uh, cool. Primarily focused, uh, I think, more towards younger audiences and families. Uh -huh. yeah. um, but St. Pete has some great museums. I actually interned at the uh, Florida Holocaust Museum for 10 weeks about oh, three wow. years ago. Um, cool. So if you're maybe not looking for a terribly uplifting but educational right. afternoon, <laughs> <laughs> right. that is a great place to visit. Um, if you want to be sad the rest <laughs> of the day. <laughs> But the, um, the Museum of Fine Arts in St. Pete is also great. Um, Fantastic. I actually have a few alumni from my museum studies program that work there. So Fantastic. How many museums are on USF campus? We have the one main one, um, which is the Contemporary Art Museum. Um, so we actually have a gallery in the anthropology department, mm -hmm. um, which is currently under construction because we just took down the exhibit we created last, last year, um, which was on the Anthropocene. Um, which is a fancy term for how humans have impacted the environment. But, right. Um, Wait, how do you pronounce that? Some people say Anthropocene. Some people say Anthropocene. 
Anthropocene. How do you pronounce it? Anthropocene. Anthropocene. But I, I agree. could be wrong. That's, <laughs> that sounds the most appropriate. Yeah. It kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit easier. Mm. Yeah. And there's there is a third art gallery mm-hmm. in the Marshall Student Center yes. here on campus. Yeah, and they have some great stuff too. Um, we'd actually, <coughs> excuse me, we'd like to maybe collaborate with them in the future um, because I actually went in there and they didn't know that we had a gallery in the anthropology department. Um, so again, it's cross-campus communication. That's always <laughs> that's always good. We that's like a, to encourage that here on Anthro Alert. Yeah. yeah, that's a big thing that doesn't happen <coughs> as often as it should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we? Um, Got on a slight tangent there, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but hey, we're here talking about museum studies, so why not promote some some neat exhibits and some museums in the surrounding area? Um, let's uh, take a short music break, and then we'll be back with Vivian, and she can explain to us all about the neat uh, fieldwork that she did recently and about her upcoming dissertation project. Stay tuned. Hey, hey, you're listening to Anthro Alert. Here on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7, HD3, Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. Also, um, if you're listening to this now live and you're not listening to it on one of those previous ways, you are probably listening on TuneIn app or TuneIn Radio yes. uh, because I don't know if that Bulls Radio stream is working. We'll have to see if the Bulls radio stream is working, but yeah, turn it in works just fine. So we are we're back on Anthro Alert with uh, you know, Vivian Gornick is sitting here in the studio with us this week, and we're going to talk about um, her experiences. Uh, just previously or recently, did her uh, field work for her dissertation research. And so we're going to be discussing heritage sites in the UK. Vivian, can you um, break down the term heritage sites for us and kind of explain to our listeners what that what that means? Yeah, no problem. Um, So heritage is an interesting term. Um, Most of the time, if you ask your average person what heritage is, they start talking about the past, mostly things that we pass down to future generations. um, And those things can be tangible or intangible. Things like uh, actual artifacts and objects that we do find in museums are uh, tangible versions of heritage. Also, intangible things might be your oral traditions, like a language or things like recipes and stuff like that. Um, But the way that I look at heritage and the way that uh, a pretty large number of scholars look at heritage now is that it's not something static. So it's something that changes over time, and it's um, influenced by the current political, economic, social mm-hmm. uh, realities uh, that we live in today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't want to be too jargony about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah. pretty simply put, the way I look at heritage is that it's something that is in the present, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that is um, shaped by present circumstances and present needs. So, for example, um, there's a great quote uh, from one of the scholars, Lowenthal, who says, that um, heritage is much about remembering as forgetting. Hmm. Um, so a lot of times in the, in the past, you know, you've, you've, you've seen examples in history where certain things in, in the past are highlighted and others are silenced depending on whatever the current political agenda is. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. speaking of heritage and politics, that's kind of how I... Um, got interested in the topic that ended up being my dissertation Mm -hmm. project which um 
very, you know, simply put, looks at how heritage sites um, are linked with national identity. Mm. So, and, and by national identity, we're talking about what does it mean to be British um, or in an American context, what does it mean to be American? Mm-hmm. Who's identifying that way? Um, mm-hmm. And national identity is kind of interesting in itself because it's really, it's a, it's a modern thing. It's not something that humans always had. Um, we see the rise of nationalism, and nationalism as a term has a sort of negative connotation now. Right. Um, but the way that I'm using it, I simply mean uh, having a national identity. Okay. Um, so na- nationalism, or the idea of a nation state, really started around the, the 19th century when you started seeing um, common languages rather than sort of all these different dialects. So uh, if you think about, you know, industrial England or the industrial United Kingdom, uh, that's when you start seeing this idea of a, of a national identity being created. And it's not by accident that a lot of the biggest museum institutions that we see in the world also popped up at that same time. So if you think about the Louvre in Paris, it's essentially um, a collection of what it means to be French or what at that time was viewed as important to France mm-hmm. um, or the British Museum, which some might see as a collection of, of colonial loot. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it was a representation and still is a representation of the British nation and what is important to British people. Mm. Um, so, you know, if something is as contentious as maybe the Parthenon marbles which, mm. of course, Greece would like to have back. <laughs> right, right. Um, that's an example of, 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 a, of an argument that's sort of based in national identity. A lot of people who say they should stay say they, they're a part of the cultural fabric of British identity now and that they have as much right to them as people in Greece. Interesting. I personally don't agree with that. Right, yeah. Um, but so anyway, you see this, this connection between the rise of the nation-state and the existence of museums as these sort of repositories of what it means to be a certain mm-hmm. nation or have a certain identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did is I kind of um, took that a little bit further and, and expanded from museums to heritage sites generally. So that's going to be your your archaeological sites, um, but also particular landscapes that are preserved um, through various institutions. In, in the case of the UK, um, you have the National Trust, you have English Heritage, and you have smaller independent organizations as well. So in terms of conserving heritage, the UK has a lot more going on than we do, sure. and there's there's yeah. a lot of reasons for that. So, right. But yeah, so I, I was looking at how um, national identity and heritage sites are linked, and kind of the, I guess, impetus behind doing that. Um, was inspired partially by Brexit, mm. um, which of course is the movement to have the United Kingdom leave the European Union. And there's a ton of complex reasons behind why people voted for or against that. Right. Um, but one of the one of the common critiques is that um, the Labour Party, which is sort of the their version of like the left, like, you know, Democrat, what we would have as Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, were promoting what was considered a multicultural platform. Um, and what multiculturalism is, is this uh, promotion of, of 
the fact that you have people in the United Kingdom from all over the world. That's sort of their post-colonial reality. So you've got all these former colonies. People are coming over and, and creating new lives. Um, on the one hand, you have people who say, that's fine. You know, they're bringing their culture and they're making a contribution. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have people who say, that's fine. They can come, but they need to learn how to be British, that there's something about British culture that they need to assimilate into. Interesting. Um, of course, that, that argument could be <laughs> could be used in the United States as well, right? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of what you're saying, I kind of, you know, you hear in the, in the U.S. media a lot, a lot too, you know with the, the yeah. Im, you know, the immigration status and, and things that, you know, the political climate here in the States nowadays. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, essentially it's a symptom of globalization. So a mm-hmm. lot of, a lot of nations are going through these same kind of these identity questions. And I call it an identity crisis because it is something that people struggle with. You know, what, what does it mean to be British or who can be British, but also who can be American and, you know, who are we going to allowed to have that identity so um yeah so multi you know i i think that heritage sites as sort of these sources of identity can play a role in either promoting one view or the other so either promoting there is something as british or this multicultural reality so one of the questions that i have from from this part of the conversation is is multiculturalism an indirect product of colonialism. So, so would we have multicultural societies had there not been a strong push to colonize? Um, mm. That's a good question. It is a good question. I think that the UK is a unique example because they had such a big empire. I mean, you have people coming from the you know Asian subcontinent. You've got people coming from the Middle East, um, even parts of Africa. Uh, the Caribbean so yeah I mean they were they were very successful in creating an empire Mm. Um, so their situation is a little bit different say from an American situation where by default of globalization and sort of a neoliberal economy we have people moving across the globe wanting to come here for one reason or another Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah I would say that that Britain's current situation is is a direct result of its colonial activities um, whether or not they like to admit that is another thing um, so yeah they've got the colonial aspect and also just the, the general reality of globalization I think hmm. so what um, talking about these heritage issues and um, or not na- uh, like national identity and, and linking them to heritage sites what did you find specifically in, in the two sites that you looked at um, so the two sites I was looking at, um, Glastonbury, which uh, most people actually associate with the music festival, um, which does play a role in what Glastonbury is known for, but um, I kind of looked at the actual town. Uh, most people don't know that Glastonbury Festival happens about eight miles outside of Glastonbury, um, but it is its namesake. So, but um, I, I don't know a thing about uh, a UK geography. Okay. Yeah, uh, <laughs> me, me neither. So if you're looking at a map, I was in the southwest corner, um, the little, little like, it almost looks like Italy boot that kind of sticks uh, out the side. Okay. Um, and I was in Glastonbury, Somerset, and then a little bit further southwest in Tintagel, Cornwall. Um, I think for the sake of time, I'm ju- I'm, I'll just focus on one of them. But Glastonbury in particular 
is a really interesting place. It's kind of associated with this new age hippie kind of lifestyle. Hmm. Um, but that's also what makes it such an interesting place to look at because there's absolutely no reason why people from upwards of 20 different faiths, multi-race, multi-ethnic people should all get along in one little town of less than 8,000 people. Um, but it does. So there's there's some vibe happening in Glastonbury where it's tolerant of pretty much anything hmm. um, except for you know extreme drug use or violence. They, they do um, try to keep that out. But it doesn't matter what faith you are. You could be Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, pagan, Wiccan, whatever. Um, it, you know, things like performing certain gender roles, they definitely don't view it as a gender binary. It's, you know, you can be anywhere on the spectrum. You can be anywhere on the spectrum for sexuality as well. Hmm. Um, so what I wanted to see was if in a place like that, you still had this kind of hegemonic or powerful uh, heritage narrative, because there's th uh, actually three or four really big heritage sites in Glastonbury. So I wanted to see if um, the heritage sites were doing something differently than the town was doing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they were. You have uh, Glastonbury Tor, which is a it's a big hill uh, with the remnants of a of a church on the top, and most people will go just for the view, um, but others will go for spiritual reasons. But it's managed by the National Trust, um, and then you also have the remnants of Glastonbury Abbey. Um, which was actually one of the most powerful monasteries in Europe um, before the dissolution of all the monasteries by Henry VIII. Because he wanted his divorce, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically what I found is you have these traditional heritage narratives happening, which are what in academia, in this area of study, we like to call authorized heritage discourse, mm. which is a fancy way of saying the people in power have decided what it is you're going to read or what you're going to mm. learn about. Interesting, um, interesting. Okay. Thank, thank you for defining that because you, you must have seen my face. I, I was totally confused. Um, a lot of times, you know, we like to say that heritage is about power or, you know, history is written by the victors, right? Mm -hmm. So as much as history is, is a, a selection, heritage is also, a, a, there's deliberate choices being made about what is being presented and what isn't. So um, in the case of Glastonbury, you have a bit of a counterculture happening where independent tour groups and tour leaders will go around to these sites and give their own interpretation. So it's kind of nice to oh, see this, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily in a, uh, um, I don't know what the word is. It's not really a contentious relationship. You know, they're not saying, oh, well, you're not telling our story, so we're going to tell it. But I think it, it's it's a um, it's almost like a silent understanding that the Glastonbury Abbey may not be talking about certain things, so this independent tour group might come in and and tell a story a little bit differently. Right. That, that's interesting. So that tells me that there is a market somewhere for someone who wants to be a guerrilla tour guide. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and I think any any site could be like that. I mean sometimes it's easier to talk about these ideas in an American context. So, for example, um, I know both of you have been to, te I think, Texas at one point or another. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen it on the map. It's, it's a big <laughs> it's place. It's kind of big. <laughs> um, if you think about the Alamo um, and mm. the way that that story is told, it's obviously told with an American, you know, skew to it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but if 
if the same thing were happening there, you might have um, a tour guide of Mexican descent uh, giving a tour of that site from their perspective. Mm -hmm. So kind of filling in those gaps and those silences that um, inherently take place because every museum exhibit you see or heritage site panel that you read, it's the result of many choices. Um, And a lot of times those choices result in um, turning the volume up on some things and silencing others. So, so the way I understand it is, is one aspect of cultural studies or heritage studies is to expand on the various perspectives um, that have or have not necessarily been discussed. Yes. Um, so I guess the best way to describe that would just be issues of representation. Um, one of the classic examples is any um, relationship between an indigenous population and a post-colonial government. So mm-hmm. if you think about... Um, the First Nations people in Canada and how they're represented in Canadian national museums would be a great example of um, issues of representation and making sure that um, these communities are being consulted um, and that their stories being told not just how you know Canadian academics want to tell them but how the indigenous people themselves want to tell them I have a question. So, I, a lot of a lot of this stuff is is um, you know very widely talked about in in anthropology. We talk about issues of representation mm-hmm. and power and homogeneity. So, how are these same discussions approached in museum studies, as far as like representation and stuff? Like, you know, having a museum that maybe impartially represents history, or you know, do you have these discussions, or is it all the time? Okay. <laughs> um, I will say that. Um, Maybe museum studies was a little bit behind the curve. Anthropology maybe started talking about these, you know, in the what we like to call a postmodern turn mm-hmm. a little bit sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, and, and I, part of that might be a result of museums not just being about natural history and history. You've also got art museums and things like that. Sure. So talking to an art historian about issues of representation would be a very different conversation. Um, right. So I actually like to, to challenge my some of my other museum colleagues every now and then because we do have such different perspectives. Um, So trying to bring that anthropological perspective in, which of course we want it to be holistic and representative, Mm -hmm. um, bringing that into the the conversation definitely is something I like to do and and hopefully something that this research can contribute to. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to to, um, see these same conversations from, you know, going on in different fields and maybe how how the perspective is different than the way that we see things in in Mm -hmm. anthropology and try to find somewhere to meet in the middle. We're going to take one more short music break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk to Vivian about her experiences in the field. Hey, so here we are, Anthro Alert, Friday afternoon. You're listening to Bulls Radio. WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. You can also um, learn more about AnthroAlert and Vivian and all of our previous guests by visiting anthroalert.com. All right, so today Vivian is talking to us about heritage studies, uh, museum and heritage studies, um, speaking about her experience studying national identity and and aspects of we've talked about aspects of colonialism, uh, multiculturalism, various perspectives in the field of uh, museum studies. And so I think now the next question for us to ask is, what was your field experience like? Your field work? 
Um, well, it was a lot less hot and a lot less humid, yeah. <laughs> which I very much enjoyed. Um, very envious of that. Yeah. So <laughs> I was actually over in the UK um, on and off from March until the end of July, which um, from a traditional anthropological perspective is actually a very short amount mm. of time to be mm -hmm. doing research. Traditionally, we like to be in the field about eight to 12 months, if not more than a year. So what I ended up doing was, was what we like to call a rapid ethnographic assessment, <laughs> <laughs> which is a fancy way of saying trying to shove as much stuff into right. a short amount of time. Right. Um, for me, I would say that field work um, it is a little bit different than some of our colleagues because there was no language barrier mm. um, for me, so I didn't have to learn a language. Uh, the cultural differences are... There are some, but they're fairly few. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my biggest com my biggest adjustment was the size of the washing machine. <laughs> Not was it smaller, much smaller. Um, and it, it takes like three hours to do one load of laundry, which I know wow. is first world problems, right? right but right. <laughs> um, in terms of the actual um, entering, what we call entering the field and learning about the culture of the population that we're studying, less of a learning curve. Yeah, I had much less of a learning curve now. In terms of homesickness, definitely still had some of that going on. Um, and the imposter syndrome set in pretty quickly upon arrival. Um, you know, what am I doing here? Do I actually know how to do anthropological research? And for a little while, I was convinced I didn't actually know how to do anything. <laughs> um, but my, in terms of what I did, I slowly got to know people in, um, in Glastonbury. I, so I, I separated my field work into two halves. And the first half was in Glastonbury. And um, just slowly getting to know people, getting to know the town. Uh, our field notes are, are very sort of detailed uh, descriptions of what's going on. Simple things of like, you know, which, so which shops are where, who owns those, um, who goes into which shops. Learning who the regulars are, learning where different groups of people sit in town, things like that. Um, and then slowly making those connections and, and asking people if they'd be interested in sharing their their local knowledge and their opinions. So how did you choose Glastonbury specifically? And then once you got there, how did you, you know, you didn't have much time. So how did you go about getting to know people and or learning where to go and then, you know, asking people if they would share? Yeah, it's um, so Glastonbury. I had actually done an internship with a heritage organization back in 2012, um, the Church's Conservation Trust. And I happened to be based there. Um, so I actually was somewhat familiar with Glastonbury before before I did this. But one of the things about Glastonbury is it's a it's a nationally important site without having the um, the reputation that like a Stonehenge would have, for example. So Stonehenge is it's so hard to study a place like Stonehenge because there's so much else going on there. Mm -hmm. um, whereas Glastonbury has um, it's a little bit less known. Um, and then the choice of Tintagel was actually due to they're both related to Arthurian legend. So King Arthur, nice. um, <laughs> what's more British than the legend right. of King Arthur, right? Right. Um, King Arthur was supposedly born, uh, conceived in Tintagel Castle in Cornwall, um, and according to some legends, was buried with Queen Guinevere at Glastonbury Abbey. That's awesome. So I love King Arthur. <laughs> um, it is, and it's one of those things that never seems to get old, right? You still get movies being made about King Arthur. Um, stories being told, various authors doing their own versions of it. 
Um, so Glastonbury is actually, for those of you who are familiar with Arthurian legend, is often called the Isle of Avalon um, because of its connection with Arthur. Um, so, yeah, in terms of getting into the field, it's uh, you kind of just have to get outside your comfort zone, which for me, I tend to be an introvert, which seems counterintuitive to doing anthropology. But I think actually a lot of us are because anthropology gives us an excuse to get outside of that part of our personality mm. um, and really just kind of biting the bullet and approaching people and saying, finding a way to explain what you're doing that is um, appealing, right? Because you mm -hmm. want them to feel like they're going to get something out of doing this. Most people don't want to spend an hour chatting with a stranger right. <laughs> in a cafe for, for nothing. Um, so it's definitely important to establish some kind of rapport with them before that happens. So what was your pitch? Or actually, well, <laughs> Renee, what, you, I think you had something. Yeah, I was like, well, if you say you're an introvert, how are you on the radio right now? I know. Well, <laughs> see, because no one can see me. <laughs> actually, true story, I, I did theater in high school. So um, oh, okay. even though I'm an introvert, I guess I'm somewhat of a performer. But um, yeah. So you, you know. can adapt different personalities to... Yeah, maybe that helps. And <laughs> now I'm the anthropologist, so I can go talk to people and do my qualitative research. Yeah, do maybe that's the thing. <laughs> do you have a special anthropology hat? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, of course, we all sort of joke about our what we wear in the field, right? Cargo pants and hiking boots. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still on that Indiana Jones kick. Honestly. There you yeah. go. Um, but, yeah, so uh, I forgot what your question was, oh, Spencer. Uh, what was... You were talking about oh, building pitch. rapport and, you know, people have to s have a sense that they're getting something out of this. So h what was your what was your pitch to get people to talk to you? Um, I guess you kind of have to take a marketing perspective on it. Um, so a lot of times I would spin it as you have local knowledge that would be useful to me. Um, mm -hmm. And are you willing to share it? Okay. Um, so it's not so much that I have something to give to them, but explaining to them how what they know and what they do on a daily basis is important and valuable. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people are more willing to chat about themselves than, than we think sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so I spent many an afternoon in the pub, you know, at the, the window seat with various people from throughout town and just chatting with them about themselves. And uh, I think a lot of the, my interviews tended to be fairly long, but that's because I let them talk about themselves for quite a while in the beginning, just you know, to, so we could get a little bit more comfortable with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, who did, did you target specific people that you thought might have knowledge of these places or was it just people that were coming into the pub? Um, I, I targeted specific people, which sounds, sounds kind of dangerous. But <laughs> <laughs> um, there were sort of three main categories. The first is people who are actively employed in the heritage industry. So people who actually worked at the Abbey or for the National Trust. Um, people who work indirectly with the heritage uh, industry, so those sort of independent tour group owners. And then finally, people who lived in the village who had some sort of local knowledge. Maybe they, they owned a shop or something like that. Oh, well, so, so, now, that, um, so now that as you're, you're kind of in the last stage of your PhD, you know, you know analyzing the results or, or analyzing the uh, yeah analyzing the results of your field work, um, getting into writing your dissertation. Um, what does the future look like for you? <laughs> um, my husband would love to know what the future holds because he's sort of got more anxiety about it than I do. <laughs> um, but ideally, I'm looking to take um, 
to stay in academia and hopefully get a job as a professor. Um, but in terms of the applied nature of my re- of my research, it's kind of a it's something that a consultant or someone who's evaluate doing evaluations for heritage organizations could do. So, kind of a a long term goal would be to create some kind of um, company that actually offers evaluative or um, you know, res- basically offering research to heritage organizations to for them to better understand their visitors, um, their motivations for visiting, who's not going, who is going, that sort of thing. And those companies do already exist, and I think they're only going to become more important um, as these institutions try to be as sustainable as possible. Yeah, because as, as I think you were saying earlier, um, one aspect of the current environment that we live in is that we have many different people and many different people who come from different places. And so one part of heritage studies in, in museums serves as an opportunity for us to have more discussions about the the differences amongst us and between us and the similarities and being able to help us find maybe some commonalities to address some of the social or uh, economic problems that we have. Definitely, I think so. Yeah, I think that heritage could play a big role in that. I think that museums um, traditionally maybe were not institutions that we... Um, you know, associate with ideas of, of social justice or, you know, being activist in some kind of way. But I do think that these places can take a stand and say, you know, we are going to be as representative as possible. And we admit that maybe there's some stories that we haven't told in the past that we should be telling. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be something like, you know, Southern plantations finally giving interpretive information about slavery and slave, you know, the slaves that used to live there. Um, it doesn't have to be something that, you know, what, you know, obvious mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, it can be something as simple as how do we get more um, people of Indian descent into British museums or people from different age brackets? How do we get those those millennials that are killing every industry, <laughs> right? How do we get them to come to these places and to be engaged mm-hmm. um, and involved? Yeah, Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> Those millennials. <laughs> um, okay, so Vivian, any any final comments or, or maybe something important that, that we would have missed otherwise talking about this topic? Um, just the next time you go to a museum, think about not just what you're seeing, but what you aren't seeing. Yeah, <laughs> man, those are fa- okay. We're we're gonna wrap up Anchor Alert this week because that was some fantastic words to live by. But first, a message from our sponsors. <laughs> 